Welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Drew Evans. And I'm Ben Garmo. And well, folks, we have finally reached the end of the Trial by Combat tournament. We've gotten our results. Our champion is Steven Johnson of Cincinnati. And as many viewers may remember from last year, after we got to this point in the year, we had an episode titled Two National Champions. We had Danny Kunkel of Miami and Nick Ramos of NYU on. And it was a famously a very well-received uh, episode. It was probably the number one most viewed episode, and we knew we had to recreate it. Obviously, that was a little bit tougher this year, uh, but we are really excited to be having Stephen Johnson of Cincinnati, the trial by combat winner, and Adam Chase of Yale Mock Trial uh, come on and speak to us. But first, let's talk a little bit about trial by combat. Uh, For everyone that listened to our preview, they learned a very good lesson in trying to predict mock trial, and that is stop trying to predict mock trial. (laughs) I predicted that we would have two female finalists, and I was very incorrect. And Jonathan Kwong, who was nice enough to come and talk to us, predicted he would come in, I think he said 15th, and he was also about as wrong as you can get. He finished second. He had a phenomenal, phenomenal performance. It was great to get to see him go, but... Unlike myself, Ben, you were actually there. You got to see it live and in person. So how was all of it? How was actually being at Trial by Combat as a coach with Sidney Gaskins? It really was everything that I wanted it to be and also wildly unpredictable at the same time. Um, I mean, first of all, to, to, you know, to sort of like save you from giving yourself too much of a hard time. The two other semifinalists were Sabrina Grandi of UVA and Natalie Garson of Boston University. I got to see both of them go. Both of them were fantastic. And a final round with the two of them would have been really great and probably wasn't very far off from happening. So I think your prediction was, was completely reasonable and wasn't too far away from coming true. I'll say this also. The number one ranked attorney out of the the groups, out of the the first four rounds, was Sabrina Grandi. And the number one overall witness, which I'm stealing this from you, Ben, because you're about to say this, was Sidney Gaskins. So to be fair, the best attorney and the best witness were both female. So maybe I'm not as off base as I thought. Yeah, if if that had been your prediction, it would have been correct. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, no, but uh, look... I can't give enough credit to Abby Heller of Drexel and Justin Bernstein of UCLA for putting on just an awesome event, right? Like I I said beforehand how excited I was and I'll be honest, it's brutal. It it is absolutely brutal and it is a huge challenge. Obviously, Sydney winning Best Witness uh, was fantastic. She finished with a winning record uh, and an honorable mention. Uh, I think she technically finished eighth place overall, and I'm extraordinarily proud of her. I believe she is the only person in the field who faced two attorney opponents who advanced to the semifinals. Her two attorney opponents were Jonathan Kwong and Natalie Garson. Um, and they didn't advance because they crushed her. They, you know, advanced because they won really close rounds or split really close rounds. Uh, and so I'm immensely proud of her. Uh, but more than anything else, just the level of advocacy from top to bottom at this tournament was exceptional. I got to watch, you know, we're going to talk to Steven. I got to watch him go against Daniel Elliott in round one. Uh, predictably, that was really great. Then, of course, Sydney plays Jonathan in round two. And that round 
which was in the ceremonial courtroom, was one of the best rounds of mock trial I've ever seen. Um, I got to see Elizabeth Bays and Stephen Torres up against each other in round three. And then round four, we uh, Sydney faced off with Natalie Garson. So I, I felt like I got to see almost the whole field over the course of the weekend. I got to see Stephen and Sabrina go in the semifinal round. Um, it was just awesome. Uh, it was really an honor to be a part of that field. Uh, I do want to do a quick shout out. So, uh, you know, we mentioned the last time that there had been a competitor who dropped. Uh, and unfortunately, there was there was another competitor who who dropped out a portion of the way through preparation, uh, just had, you know, wasn't able to continue. And so Kyle Westifer from LaSalle, who was sort of like the alternate alternate, jumped in, I believe, at approximately 10 p.m. the night before was when he learned that he was competing. Just, Justin Bernstein's riff was, I talked to Kyle, and Kyle said, yeah, I'm ready. And I talked, Justin said, I talked to his coach, and his coach said, he's not. Um, <laughs> but everything, I didn't get to see Kyle go, but everything I heard was that he stepped in and did a pretty fantastic job on half of the prep time and, you know, jumping in. And if I recall correctly, his attorney opponents were Regina Campbell and Jack Siegenthaler. So, like, not that there's an easy path through the field at TBC, but if there is, that's not it. Um, <laughs> so I've heard nothing but great things about him. But I got to see Steven go. He's fantastic. Well-deserving. Got to see Jonathan go. He's fantastic. Well-deserving. So all in all, just a spectacular, spectacular event. And, you know, this is no surprise to Justin or Abby, but I'm hoping that it's not the last time that Sydney and I get to do it. Well, I think it's fair to say that uh, an eighth place performance from a sophomore yields probably an invite back, but you never really know. Uh, no, I mean, it definitely sounds like there's a lot to be proud of from you guys. And I think we can all agree that Sydney's performance was due exclusively to individual effort and no help from her coach. Oh, I couldn't agree more with that. That Trust me, <laughs> I, I probably got in her way more than anything else. Uh, but seriously, you guys should be so proud. I'm sure that uh, it was a, it should be definitely considered a successful showing for her. Um, as for really everyone there, I think that it's been said multiple times, but it is just such an elite field. I mean, I, I, I think that it's it goes to show the fact that we had the three returners um, that were in the top five last year in Mike Kleiman, Sarah Stebbins, and Jack Siegenthaler. The fact that the three of them were not uh, were not in the top four this year, I, I don't think is emblematic that they got worse. I don't think it means that they were not the top competitors that they are. They clearly are very, very good competitors. I, I, please, if anyone wants to contest that, stop. You're just wrong. I think that it's emblematic of the fact that this field managed to get even better, and it was really, really, really hard to get to the end. So that it goes shows a fantastic field, a fantastic tournament. And although I wasn't there to watch it in person, it was amazing to watch the final round. It was a really, really close, close round. Yeah, and and uh, you know, before we wrap this part up and talk to our guests, uh, we should mention, you know, so. I don't think there's going to be a formal tab summary and, and Justin doesn't make a ton of the results public, but from the awards announcement. So the fifth place competitor was Regina Campbell from Chicago. Um, my understanding is she was very close to being in that top group. Uh, and then the honorable mentions who are the people who finished with a winning record were Elizabeth Bays uh, of Yale, Chris Grant of Northwood, uh, Sydney Gaskins of UMBC and then uh, Sarah Stebbins of Georgia Tech, I believe, was the full list. So a, a solid list of competitors there, people with with a solid pedigree. 
You know, I, I actually wonder the the fact that Regina uh, Campbell and Sid and sorry Sabrina Grandi faced each other in their fourth round. The fact that that led to you know Sabrina getting into the finals and and uh, obviously Regina getting fifth. My understanding is that it's paired relatively high high. I kind of wonder if this shows that if there's going to be a semifinal of some sorts, maybe there needs to be some form of power protection. I mean, why is Regina, or I'm not really sure what who the exact placement was in the round four, but my understanding is that they were both you know one and two to some degree. The fact that your reward for being at the top spot in that round is, oh, you get to play the other top person and make it that much harder to reach the end. Maybe that's not the best way of pairing it if it's a semifinal. I I don't know that I have a better solution. I also don't know that that is exactly how Justin decided to do the pairings, but it's just kind of interesting food for thought. Yeah, so on that point, it's a really interesting one. And actually, uh, I had a similar conversation with with another coach while we were in the tab room. uh, And without going into a tremendous amount of detail, because I know some of it doesn't get made public for understandable reasons, um, I do. My understanding is I do think you're correct that that was essentially a high, high pairing. One of the challenges is with power protection and AMTA rounds, right? Every team goes as a team for three rounds. So it's like the first three rounds arguably are more indicative of uh, what happens versus when you get to round four, the people who are being paired as attorneys in round four have only gone as attorneys once before. And so I, I think... I would imagine Justin with his, you know, extensive experience is always looking at ways to do things. But I think my impression is that the way that they paired things was about as good as you're probably going to be able to make it. And it is unfortunate that as a result of that, that both Sabrina and Regina didn't get to advance. Um, but it's, it's, it's an interesting question. It's a young tournament and it will be very interesting to see in future years if Justin makes any tweaks like he did this year with, you know, ballots one versus check marks to continue to, um, hone out what the scoring and pairing system is going to be moving forward. And Hey, at the end of the day, it is good that it worked out the way it did. Steven Johnson was ranked fourth and elevated all the way to winning the whole thing. So clearly something about the process is working. But frankly, this is enough from us. It is time to hear from our two national champions. So after the break, we'll be hearing from Steven Johnson of Cincinnati. I'm going to start by telling you something you already know. This was an incredibly close round. We've got three ballots. For the government, we've got three ballots for the defense, and our seventh ballot was four to three. Taking home the sword, our trial by combat champion, Mr. Steven Johnson. Welcome back to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. We're thrilled today to be joined by Stephen Johnson of the University of Cincinnati. Stephen is a well-decorated competitor. He's competed at Cincinnati uh, for several years. He's competed at Nationals with Cincinnati several years. Uh, He was named an All-American in 2019. He was actually the highest-ranking All-American attorney 
at the entire tournament, at the entire uh, national championship in Philadelphia for his uh, excellent team at Cincinnati. And then he's competed at trial by combat the past two years in 2018. And then the most recent iteration in 2019, as you're probably aware, the reason that we're talking to him is he is the reigning trial by combat champion as he won the most recent iteration in 2019. And we're thrilled to be talking with him about all of those things. So Stephen, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us. Oh, thank you for having me on. So I want to start this interview where we start a lot of our interviews, which is, you know, all the way back at the beginning. So you've obviously been doing mock trial for, for several years. So how did mock trial start for you? Yeah, nine, actually. Uh, my freshman year of high school in a very small high school in rural Ohio, I joined the mock trial team there my freshman year. And I was on the team there for four years. And then uh, I joined at University of Cincinnati. And my freshman year, uh, I was not great. It did not translate well from high school to college. And I was on the C team that year, but uh, eventually uh, I got things turned around. So you start that. So am I correct? You, you did five years in college. Is that right? Competing? Yes. Yes. Okay. So you, now that first year, that year that you were on the C team, that was the year that you guys hosted nationals. Is that right? It was. It was. I was helping run coffee and make sure there weren't conflicts and not at all competing. Well, Stephen, you mentioned specifically your time at, at Cincinnati. Uh, and so I'm curious to know, obviously, you guys have had a fair amount of success over the last couple of years. You've been to Nationals, I think, three out of the last four years, and you've competed for several of those teams. So what's it like being at Cincinnati for the last couple of years and being a part of the success that you guys have had? Cincinnati's great. Uh, it was very enjoyable. Uh, I made a lot of my best friends in undergrad there. I, I liked the coaches. I developed some great relationships there. Um, and and yes, like you said, we were very successful to a certain extent. You know, we made it to nationals three of those four years, honorable mention once, and just shy of an honorable mention a couple of times. But we never really broke into that uh, that top ten level that that we were aiming for every year. Um, but but it was it was it was very enjoyable and. They taught me a lot about how to do mock trial and a lot of bad things that I had learned in high school or um, habits about, you know, how to cross examination, how to do cross examination. Um, they were very helpful. So obviously all of that experience has led to quite a bit of individual success as well for you. Uh, I want to start out. Stephen, by talking first about 2018 trial by combat. It was the first time we ever had a trial by combat. What exactly were your expectations going into it? I mean, did you have anything, did you have anything to go off of, of what you were expecting, and how was it really? Uh, no, I had absolutely no point of reference for it. Uh, I didn't have any idea what the 24-hour prep would be like. I didn't go through a scrimmage beforehand like I heard some of the other competitors did and, and like I did this year. Uh, so it was completely new and it was the most mentally taxing thing I, I had ever done. I wasn't ready for the challenge in a lot of ways that preparing a case in that amount of time presents. And so I, I didn't do very well. Uh, I, I came in 13th uh, the first time I went. So I, I, I learned a lot about that and brought it this year uh, to, to not make a lot of the same mistakes that I did with my time in preparation. Well, one thing about the 2018 trial by combat uh, was that you took your head coach, Josh Lacrone, uh, AMTA board member and very well-known member in the AMTA community. Uh, what was it like working with Josh? Did you guys, 
was there anything that you felt like working with him benefited you or things that you feel like you then wanted to transition to a different coach uh, in the following year? Or how exactly was that preparation process with Josh like? The preparation process with Josh was fine. Uh, I, I didn't spend my time as well as I should have as far as memorizing the materials. Uh, drafting the materials was fine. Um, Josh writes really funny character witnesses. So we were disappointed to learn last year that it was going to be a, a police officer and <laughs> a forensics expert. So that didn't really help. I, I didn't get to break out an accent at all. Um, but he was he was helpful. Uh, he was fine with drafting materials. Um, I just uh, changed directions with, with the coaches this year because, I mean, I, I've worked with Julia now for a couple of years on the A-team, and we work really well together, and we write very good material for each other, uh, and we, we understand how to go about that writing process in, in that stressful environment a little bit better. <laughs> well, and, and you read my mind a little bit, Stephen, because that was sort of my next question, which is you obviously took Julia uh, in 2019. So, and I, I want to get into um, sort of your preparation process in 2019 in a moment. But while we're on this topic, uh, what was, and you spoke to it a little bit, but just kind of following up, what was the difference in how you went about preparing with having Julia with you in 2019 versus having Josh with you in 2018? Well, well, Julia was certainly tougher on me than Josh was. Uh, <laughs> she was much tougher about making sure that, that I stayed focused. I mean, not, not to say anything about Josh. We work well together. He is actually my, my former boss at the first job that I've ever had. So I, I work fine with Josh. Julia was tougher. She kept me more focused. She made sure that I was on task and that I was keeping to the exact schedule that I had. But it wasn't uh, completely different solely because of those coaches. I, I did a lot different myself as far as the preparation leading up to that actual day because if you haven't prepared leading up to that that 24 hours that 24 hours is going to be a lot harder for you well then tell us what exactly you did to prepare this year because i know i mean it's something that i just went through you know obviously i wasn't a competitor but i, I got to coach the tournament and and that felt like at least to me <clears throat> kind of what you said if you're not, if you don't go into it with some sort of plan with some sort of prep, it's going to be hard, you know, for you to have success. So what was your approach this year? I spent a lot of time watching as much trial video as I possibly could on YouTube. Uh, I watched as many lectures on rules of evidence that I could. I just made sure that I was a hundred percent up to speed as to what I needed to do that day. And that when I'm reading through those materials, you know, I have to have a complete knowledge of the federal rules of evidence. So you're not spending some of those 24 hours wondering, you know, is this evidence admissible? Is it not admissible? You just have to be able to read it and go and write. Well, one of the other things about your process specifically is that you obviously were invited in 2018. Then you got a second invite and a second chance to do it in 2019. And as we've established, you did quite well there. But going back to that initial invite when you first actually got it, you mentioned that you'd gotten 13th last year. Was there ever a doubt that you were going to be accepting this invite? Or were you sure from the get-go you loved it, you wanted to do it again? Oh, it, it's the best, you know, a, a shameless plug for this tournament. It, it is the best mock trial tournament that there is. There was no question that I was going to accept that invite once I got it. I wasn't, uh, as, as you may have seen, I wasn't on that initial list of eight people that was accepted. And that is entirely my fault. I didn't even put in my application until those eight people were placed on the list. Uh, 
but no, I absolutely wanted to do it again. It's enjoyable. I mean, the the venue, the judging, the competitive the competitors that you're, you know, directing, crossing, competing against as an attorney, it's, it's as enjoyable as it could be. You know, it's, it's interesting that the combination of the returners and, and the prep approach, obviously like, you know, tournament's over, you won, you're graduating. So I feel like I can ask this question, which is, can you tell us, um, you know, as, as, as someone who's gone through and now won this competition, what specifically was the breakdown of how you did things over the course of your 24 hours? Like what was your approach as you moved, you know, from the time we got that case to the time that you walked into the courtroom for round one? Oh, absolutely. So you get the case at 10 a.m., regardless of the 24 hours they advertise, it's 23. You get the case at 10. <laughs> You're and right. Then, yes, you get the case at 10 and then you read it for the first hour and at 11 a.m. on my schedule. I. I try to understand what the story is, essentially what the story is that we're telling from the prosecution or the defense or, or the plaintiff or the defense, if it's a civil case. And, you know, F. Lee Bailey said that you can't explain a story to a jury until you can tell it to your child as a bedtime story. So at 11 o'clock, when I'm going through the prep, I try to think about what the bedtime story is for both sides. You know, what is the story that I'm trying to convince the jury of? And then along those lines, I can kind of start to formulate what opening statements will look like, what my theme might be to help convince them of my story that I'm telling. And from then on, I'm writing opening statements until about noon, spend a couple hours memorizing those until 2 p.m., write the examinations until 4 or 5, and then never touch the closings and just spend a few hours running through those opening statements again, just because those are the most important thing in the entire trial at TBC. And then, uh, I, I mean, I was in bed by 11. Seems like a recipe for success to me. Well, Stephen, one of the other things that I really was interested to ask about is the fact that as a returner, you were one of uh, many students who were coming back, but you were the only one that, to our limited knowledge of what the results were, actually managed to improve your result. Um, and it's not to throw any shade at any of those competitors are all obviously very very good if they made it to trial by combat twice uh, but you know going from not placing in the top five to being the number one overall competitor is a very obvious improvement uh, do you think that there was some takeaway that you had from your initial experience that maybe other people may have missed or do you think that there's something different that you did that really was the difference maker was it all uh, Julia, was it the prep that was different? Like, what what do you think it was? Was it personal growth? Well, everything was different. I, Julia definitely helped. The prep before those twenty four hours helped. The way I spent those twenty four hours definitely. But there's also just a change in perspective of how I view the tournament in and of itself. You know, it's it is very different from standard mock trial, and you're not looking to win a ballot based on points. You know, you need to be winning individual check marks throughout the round. So when you're going to those 24 hours uh, and you're prepping what you want to do in that open, what do you want to do in the directs, crosses, close, you kind of have to plan out these moments where you're going to win that check mark or attempt to win that check mark. And you kind of try to manufacture those throughout the trial just to build up, you know, four out of those seven. And a great example of that is, you know, someone that clearly understood that John Kwong dropping that pipe in the last round. You know, the, those little moments are, are the ways that you manufacture those check marks and win around, whereas your strategy and the way that, the way that you look at the way you have to draft your materials and 
choreographing your performances is very different from a standard mock trial. And I think I realized some of those differences. And I also realized that I needed to sleep and that that was important. <laughs> uh, and that it was a very stressful thing, but if you could keep your head about you for the entirety of it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't going to kill you. Well, that last thing you said, I think is a good transition because uh, we've, talked a little bit about this, you know, before recording this interview, but I want to talk specifically about this year's experience. Because I think one of the really interesting things about this year's competition is I got to see your round one because Sydney was a witness and your round one was against Daniel Elliott. Um, and Daniel Elliott won that round. And so when you're a competitor, and I mean, first of all, obviously Daniel's an amazing competitor and and that's a tough round one draw. And then you know, the nature of trial by combat is that you're really never out of it, but obviously every ballot is really important too. Uh, and it was a close round, but after that round, as you, you know, you get into this first round, how are you feeling and how did you approach, uh, sort of the rest of the weekend after you got that round one result? Well, yeah, at eight thirty that morning, that was not the, the email I wanted to receive from Justin, that I was going to have to be a defense attorney against Daniel Elliott in the ceremonial courtroom. And no, it, it wasn't a great time. Yeah. I, I did lose that round and there's no shame in losing to Daniel Elliott. He is phenomenal. But no, I didn't, um, I didn't really count myself out. I, when you go back and look at last year's tab summary, you can kind of see how many check marks or how many balance you might really have to win to be able to push into that top four. And if you're pretty even between your attorney and your witness rounds, all you really need to do is win about 60% of both of them. And, and if you can win 60% of both of them, then you can push into that top four. And obviously, I barely scraped into that top four uh, as, as the fourth seed there. But no, I, I didn't really count myself out, although I knew I was going to have to win the next three rounds. That's interesting. That's, it's, and, and having gone through it and sort of like done a similar analysis, it's so, you know, I don't know how much, you know, you guys looked at the cards and stuff like that, but it is so hard to like track your progress and track a sense of where you're at when this mechanism of scoring is so wildly different from anything that we're used to dealing with for however many years, you know, that you deal with AMTA. Yeah, no, it, it's hard. I, I did look at the cards. I was finding out how I was doing as it went on. Um, I know some people there were flying blind. I know Daniel was, he, he, did not know that he had beaten me after it happened. But yeah, I, I didn't try to let it affect my performance, but obviously it's very difficult to to not let it do that. And seeing that after that first round, it was hard to kind of bounce back and give a, a, a good witness performance that would try to be charismatic in the second round. But um, I mean, that's just what you have to do. There, There is absolutely no hiding at TBC. I mean, as as Daniel Elliott is, you know, somebody I didn't want to see, there are eight, 12 names that I also would not want to see in a courtroom. So, I mean, it, it just is the nature of the beast when you're there. Well, I'm sure that one of those names is the person that you faced in your semifinal round, Sabrina Grandi. Uh, I really, I think that it's interesting that when you talk about how 2018 TBC changed from 2019 TBC, or how 2019 changed from 2018, rather, we have the introduction of this semifinal round where one plays four, two plays three, and then the winners face each other. Um, as you said, you were the fourth seed, so you wouldn't have been in the final round if this was last year, but 
you get your chance. You're against Sabrina. You have Mary Preston Austin as a witness. How was that round? You know, how did you feel about it? You have some changes introduced all of a sudden. How did it feel to adjust to those? What was the general sentiment during that round? A little bit of shock. I suppose I was a little bit surprised. I mean, as you said, I, I wouldn't have been in the last round in 2018 with, with this setup. Um, but I'd, li- I'd like to think, I suppose, that I confirmed it. The idea that, that you do need this semifinal to make sure that the attorney side is being placed in, in an even higher import than, than it even was previously with the 70-30 split. But going into that round, um, I mean, yeah, that that's that's uh, intimidating. I have to, you know, this this is the second time I've got to cross Sydney Gaskins. I've got Mary Preston also as my witness, and uh, and it's going against you know former national champion Sabrina Grandi. But uh, the changes that you referenced luckily did not change my case at all. I know that they were an attempt to balance the case a little bit to make it a little bit more defense heavy, and what it did was enter that document, that medical record that I point and yell to in my prosecution closing about how the defendants at home with a couple of Tylenol. So while that was an attempt to make it a more defense heavy case, uh, I, I enjoyed that. I mean, my plan was to enter that document and then, you know, Sabrina did it and John did it for me essentially. Uh, so, so it didn't change the case that I presented in any way, luckily. Well, so that, semifinal round happens obviously and and you managed to uh win against sabrina and what was and and i sat and watched that round because sydney was witnessing in that round and it was just a really spectacular round i was i was texting with a lot of i was talking with some of my other coaches i was texting with with your coach josh leckron and and just a number of different people drew and i were texting the whole time it's just about how really it was just such an awesome round of mock trial to watch and, and to be a part of uh but of course, you, you win that round and you get to move on to the final round and there's an entirely new witness and there's this whole thought process. So my question relates, first of all, to uh, the the new witness and sort of the decision making behind that, because we talked to Nick Ramos last year and he sort of expressed a preference um, to have two crosses, basically. Uh, the way that it shook out with Jonathan getting to choose and what he chose, you ended up with two crosses. So Going into that, did you have a preference? Did you end up with what you sort of thought you would want in that circumstance? How did that all break down for you in your head with all of the changes going into the final round? Well, yeah, I won't use quite as strong of words as as Nick did regarding picking a, an additional crossover a direct, but <laughs> yeah, obviously, I I think that's what you should do. Uh, I think it's. I guess to to give you an analogy, it's a lot easier to destroy a beautiful painting than it is to make one in 30 minutes. (laughs) So instead of having to tell a story, instead of receiving a document and having to weave the story into your direct, weave it into your open, into your cross, into your closings with these new facts, all I have to do is, is go up and poke holes in it. And I think that's a lot easier. So that was my preference. And, you know, it's funny we both wanted what what we got exactly. So regardless of if it had been me picking or him picking, I would have been on the prosecution crossing the, the additional witness. Well, one of the other twists about that final round was the fact that right before it, we find out that Justin has decided to give 
Daniel Elliott and Elizabeth Faye's the nod to play the final round witnesses and in his words, give the people what they wanted. Uh, to our understanding, that's not something that Daniel or Elizabeth were expecting, but I expect that it was definitely something that neither you nor Jonathan were expecting either. Uh, but what was your initial reaction to finding that out? And how was it like getting to work with Daniel and then cross Elizabeth in that final round? Yeah. <laughs> uh- that was fun. That was funny. No, I mean, my reaction was, you, you can see it in the video. I laughed. Uh, it's, that was, that was funny. I mean, Justin obviously had a really good time running this tournament and he did exactly what he said. He gave the people what they wanted. Uh, but working with Daniel was a lot of fun. Uh, he greeted me immediately as I walked up to him for the 15 minutes of witness prep in his accent and, <laughs> and showed me his uh, British flag socks that he was wearing. Oh my god! And uh, he stayed in character throughout the entirety of it. The whole fifteen minutes we're going over the direct. Uh, he stays in character, and lucky for me, the character that he stayed in seemed to have retained all of Daniel Elliott's mock trial knowledge because he he helped me. Uh, he helped me still in the British accent. Helped me draft the cross examination that I used uh, of the new the new witness. Well, that that sort of goes into my next question, which is you find out about the new witness and you get that 30 minutes. And the way it works for people who are not familiar is you get 30 minutes and you can do, you divide it however you want. But once you start talking to your witness, you can no longer talk to your coach. So what, how did you divide? You just said the 15 minutes. So how did you divide up that time? Um, you know, how much time did you work with, with Julia and then transitioning to work with Daniel? And how did you break down those 30 minutes of prep time? Yeah, I, I split it 50-50. I spent the... I, if you watch the video, I did what now seems in retrospect to be a little rude. I snatched the papers out of Justin's hands and, and walked out of the courtroom <laughs> as quickly as I could. But now, uh, Julie and I went down to the, the vault courtroom directly below and read the... It was just a one-page affidavit. So we read the affidavit, took a pen to it, decided what facts we needed to get out. We decided very early on, you know, the strategy was you're only going to make two points. And, you know, you just draft those kind of two lines of questioning with the, the short amount of facts that you have. And after that, uh, I mean, I just tried to calm down for a few minutes, honestly, and then just walked back upstairs and uh, greeted Daniel or, or Mr. Watt, I suppose I should say. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this final round was um the difference in styles right so so i think um yeah so this is the this weekend was the first time i'd ever seen you go but i think the words i would use i i feel like you're a very clinical advocate <laughs> you're very straightforward um and i mean those genuinely as compliments like i think sometimes they can sound pejorative but i think like your style is very um straightforward and 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 nonchalant and theatrical when it needs to be but not sort of all the time uh, and Jonathan, is, you know, he's a UCLA guy and he's kind of freewheeling uh, and I think he's he's off the cuff a lot and stuff like that. So can you break down for us? And this is obviously a broad question, but that final round, I felt like had a lot of ebbs and flows. He drops the pipe, then you drop the pipe, all that stuff. So <laughs> give us your breakdown of, of that final round and what it was like to go up against Jonathan. Yeah, no, uh, thank you. I will take those as compliments, uh, I suppose. I stopped fighting people describing my style as clinical. I think after the fifth or sixth time it happened, I just realized, Mm. you know, sometimes everyone else is right. 
so yes, that that is kind of ha how I am, but that's okay because that's that's just my personality, and you know you do kind of have to be yourself up there. And you're right, J John was a huge contrast in style. He was the West Coast embodied. He you know he's dancing back and forth in opening statements. He's you know he's going from from one to ten with the volume, and it, it really was quite the performance. I, I mean, he sat down from that opening statement. And I, I knew I had lost it. I knew I had lost the most important portion of the trial. So I had to try to get it back throughout the rest of it. Uh, I mean, he was great. The, the contrast in style, I think, you know, the, the way that it wore on, it really made sense as one of the judges said that, that we were playing the roles that we were. I, I think we kind of fell into a, a, a natural back and forth of a, you know, a sort of prosecution attorney that is very straightforward and, uh, and straight laced. And, and this, you know, defense attorney that is essentially just throwing everything at, at the wall, you know, in, including the Dean's speech from 15 minutes before. <laughs> well, obviously the result was probably what you were hoping for. I, I can safely <laughs> say, uh, how was that when you find out that just by one ballot, you are now the number one individual mock trialer in the country for 2019? How does it feel? Pretty good. I suppose <laughs> it was, no need to it was fun. Yeah. Hear it. No, no, it was, it was great. I mean, I, you know, my reaction wasn't, you know, over the top or anything like that. It was, it was pretty cool. It was, um, I mean, you said no need to, have, to be humble. I mean, it, it was kind of, you know, what I had intended on doing and, and, you know, walked through in my head of, of you know, what that day was going to be like. So it was really enjoyable, but then it was pretty surreal until, I think, you know, either later that night or maybe even the next day, uh, you know, what it actually meant. And, and you know, the fact that that, that video is going to be out there and, and kids are going to be watching that, trying to figure out how to do mock trial for a while. And I mean, it was really cool. Uh, I got to I got to walk around downtown Philadelphia and scare people away with a sword. So it was <laughs> that's my next question. Night. Yeah. OK, you've got this massive sword. I'm assuming you have to fly home. How did you get it through TSA? What did you do about the fact that you are wielding a real, to my understanding, full-on sword? How did you get that home? <laughs> uh, I got it home after a very awkward phone call to, I'm sure, a very concerned TSA agent about <laughs> whether I could, in fact, check a bag that contained a sword so they do let you they i mean they let you they let you take guns on airplanes that they, they would allow me to take what what is a very very elongated butter knife of that sword it's it's a lot less sharp than you would think um but 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 nonetheless they they let me check it on the airplane i just uh i had to i had to tape it up pretty substantially inside of a, a weirdly shaped box but but i got it home well on on that last point, it's really funny you say that because I think I'm going to tell this story and I'm pretty sure I'm allowed to. But so uh, when when I got there Thursday night to TBC, I, I met up with a couple of the coaches and amped people for for a couple of drinks. And, and I was talking to Justin Bernstein and Abby Heller, who were the two people who ran the tournament. Um, and Abby, who works for Drexel uh, in Justin's old position, uh, told us basically that she ordered the sword this year because, of course, she has to use Drexel's approved sword venue, a vendor, because that's that's a thing they have to have. And so she goes and she orders the sword and she has to choose between like the combat sword and the practice sword. And she figures, oh, well, we must have gotten the practice sword last year because who what? 
insane person would actually order a sharpened sword. Uh, well, that insane person was Justin, because my understanding is that Nick's sword, I think, actually does have a sharp point. It does. So, I, yeah. So I, I think it's probably for the best that Abby decided. You know, it's a little less fun. I think we can all agree about that. But you're right that that because of Abby's uh, decision, probably reasonably, that it, it is essentially a giant butter knife. <laughs> It is. No, I have no qualms with that decision. That probably made it easier to transport through the airport, honestly. That's that's fair. That's probably, you know, if you're walking around Philadelphia scaring children, maybe a little bit, <laughs> a little bit better. I don't know if that makes it any better, but still. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I hope it's not getting close enough to test out how sharp it was with people. But <laughs> hey, you know, you you win a sword. All right. You get some leeway to, to do what you want to do with it. But uh, so. Stephen, you've obviously had a long and successful career at AMTA, culminated with uh, the highest ranked All-American at Nationals this past year, uh, but this was your last year competing. So uh, you've graduated now, my understanding is. So do you know what's next for you, what you're, what you're doing now that you're uh, finished with undergrad? Uh, yeah, law school, uh, hopefully. No, yeah, I'll be I'll be attending law school somewhere in, in the fall, um, although I'm not a hundred percent sure yet exactly where that will be. Uh, I'm sure I'll be letting people know here sometime in the near future. But uh, yeah, no, I, I want to go to law school, and in the meantime, I would I would love to uh, to practice, um, you know, coaching a little bit and, and see what that is like, and hopefully uh, hopefully be able to connect with a, with a program in the area that that I'll be attending law school. But I, I definitely want to stay involved in AMTA. Um, I think judging would be fun. Coaching would be a great time. Well, Stephen, we we really appreciate you taking the time and and seriously, man, congratulations again. Because I I like I mentioned earlier, it was the first time that that I'd gotten to see you go, and and I think, um, you know, I I think when I mentioned clinical earlier, and I know you've probably heard that a lot. <clears throat> one of the things that that I really loved about your style is, you know, so Sydney and I were driving home and we were listening to the final round, and we we're just talking about how we felt like your you know a lot of advocates could be described as as clinical but um i feel like you had an attention to detail that was really special that, that you were able to find you know one of the things i loved about your argument right is so so many people had spent a lot of time on the defense we certainly did with arguing the nature of the injuries in that report and you flipped it you like double flipped it right and you turn it around and you say oh wait a second these these weren't even that bad and and that i felt like took a uh, first of all, it took guts, but it also took, I think, an understanding of the case that's really unique to have in, you know, 36 hours at that point. Uh, and so it was really a privilege to to get to watch you go. I, I thought you were spectacular. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you guys for, for having me on. Welcome back to The Mock Review. We are so thrilled today to have with us Adam Chase of Yale. Adam, as a quick introduction, has won many awards through his career, most notably a 2017 All-American at Nationals, including the final round appearance. He also received an award at the Downtown Tournament in 2018, as well as the 2019 Shutdown Showdown. And finally, in Orcs of 2019, he also received an award and most recently, he was in the final round, and we've tried to figure out how to explain this, 
but he was on the team that won the most ballots in the final round in the 2019 national championship. So Adam, we are so thrilled to have you. Well, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Uh, one thing is that uh, I do prefer to be addressed as disgraced former mock trial competitor. Um, so I don't know if you want to re-record the intro or something, but I am I am disgraced former mock trial competitor, Adam Chase. I cannot promise I will call you that. It is just simply not true. But <laughs> Adam, let's let's start this interview the way we start all of our interviews with the origin story. How did Adam Chase end up doing this activity? Um. I did mock in high school. Um, I did it at my high school. We were, I mean, we were garbage, truly. Uh, we never made it past like the first round and we did everything like the week and a half before the tournament. Um, but then I did, I did a thing called Youth in Government, which is through uh, like the YMCA, which is like a youth legislature thing. And in North Carolina, we had um, uh, a judicial program and we had a appellate court. And then my sophomore sophomore or junior year i guess like after my sophomore year we decided to start uh yeah after my sophomore year we we decided to start a mock trial program so i was the um i think like the district attorney or something under the attorney general who was um someone named caroline turvo who ended up going to harvard uh and now i think works actually I think she might work actually at the North Carolina attorney general's office. I'm getting off topic. Um, and we started a mock trial program and I helped start it. And then I ran it my senior year and that was more my involvement. There was something called the national judicial competition that was like different youth and government programs doing mock trial. Um, and I was on like the North Carolina team. We weren't totally sure what we were doing. Uh, but, uh, that was a lot of fun. And then I got to college and I, uh, didn't make the debate team. And so I joined my trial. So Adam, one thing that's a little bit unique about you as opposed to most of the guests that we've had is that you are primarily a witness in mock trial. And we are thrilled to finally be diversifying our our interview pool. But have you always been a witness? Were you ever an attorney? Have you experimented around with attorneying? Do you have a preference? I'm assuming that you like being a witness, but what's what's the deal with all of that? Right. So I was an attorney in high school, um, almost exclusively. I closed um, in high school and then got to college. And on my fall freshman team, I attorneyed on one side and witnessed on the other. And when I was attorneying, I was crossing the defendant who was not affidavited. Um, and it was, um, in this case, I think it was Covington, because I, I think we got to choose who we were prosecuting, right? Um and Daniel Stern was kind of like one of the leaders on that team. And Daniel was just like, well, he doesn't have an affidavit. So like, don't, you can't write across. So you're just going to have to kind of <laughs> come up with it as you listen, which is some of the worst advice I've ever been given. Uh, but of course, to Dan Stern, it was great advice because that's, of course, that's what you should do. Right. Yeah, sure. um, yeah of course. Uh, and, you know, you throw a, a freshman mock trial competitor into a tournament where he is crossing the defendant and has written nothing, um, you don't really set him up for success. And so after that, I kind of shifted to more witness roles for that year. And then it just kind of stuck. Um, and I just kind of, I just kind of kept doing them throughout. Uh, it was never really a conscious choice. It was just sort of a thing where I fell into it. And then it just made sense to keep doing it. Cause we had so many, 
great attorneys, you know, at Yale. And of course, I mean, a ton of great witnesses, but it was, it felt like it was the place where I could add more value to the team. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And being a team player is definitely part of it. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned Daniel Stern. Uh, I want to come to that 2016 year. Nationals that year, you've got Dan Stern, you've got Raymond Zhu, this phenomenal team. They win the final round. What was it like for the program, for you individually to be a part of just the program, seeing that victory and not even necessarily being on the winning team, but as a part of the program? How, how was that? Oh, it was awesome. I mean, it was the coolest thing ever. Uh, I mean, we we all got together and watched uh, the round, I think in, I want to say it was Justin Abbasi's room, uh, but I, I think that's right. Um, it was awesome. It was the coolest thing ever. I mean, being new to that team and, you know, having been told by many people that we were very good, um, you know, and, uh, you know, getting to, to see it happen was, was, it was the best. I mean, I, I was thrilled. Um, and I, I really didn't have any feelings of like, oh man, like I wish I had been on that team. Cause like, I should not have been on that team. Like Pat Doolittle <laughs> was going to do a better job than I was going to do. You know, Eleanor Rundy was going to do a better job than I was going to do. So there was, in no way was I like, oh man, I wish, you know, I should have been there. It was just like, man, that was awesome to watch them put up what I still think has to be one of the best, you know, sides of mock trial that's ever been put up was that, you know, 20, uh, 2016 round. I think you would be hard pressed to find people that would disagree with that. Uh, it was certainly an iconic team and a phenomenal final round to watch. Now, Moving on to next year, get to 2017. Now, all of a sudden, you're in the final round. You're part of that team. You're part of this legacy. Don't quite get the result you guys wanted. And it's against the very same team that you guys have beaten last year, UVA. How was 2017 different? What's the feeling like now that you are in the final round? How was all that? Right. So I was there, which was great. Uh, we lost, which was less good. <laughs> um, Fair. I'll tell you something funny, though. I I think I'm very bad at knowing how trials are going because I remember the trial break happened and I was like, oh, we are killing this right now. Like, we are absolutely about to win this trial. And <laughs> I mean, I think that I was probably the only person in the room who thought that. Um but I'm sure you know the background of what happened there, which is, you know, we scrimmaged UVA before mm-hmm. the tournament. Yep. Um, and we had what was a somewhat inventive defense theory. And, you know, I don't want to speak for UVA's perception of the, the round because it wasn't scored. But I will say that in interviews afterwards, the UVA students said, we scrimmaged Yale before and we lost. And that was an <laughs> unscored round. Um, and those are their words and not mine. Um, and so, you know, we, (laughs) I have to own the fact we did decide to go defense, which I was, I'm not sure why that decision was made. Um, I think it was, sorry. I mean, our defense side had gone 10 and 0, um, and we just felt, we thought it was kind of unstoppable and it turns out it was extraordinarily stoppable. Um, but, uh, I mean, one thing I remember from that round is I had basically no time. I think I had less than five minutes to do my witness Um, because um, Sarah, I think, was the one who went really long. And so I remember like rushing through it and 
I mean, the thing I'll always remember from that round is Sabrina Grandi objecting to relevance on my character answer about the haircuts nearby joke, um, <laughs> which I will indulge myself and tell the joke uh, for if anyone's listening who doesn't, isn't a dork and hasn't watched a bunch of old final rounds, but it was, I was the <laughs> Southern barber and I was like, I'm a barber, run my own shop called Haircuts Nearby. Why is it called Haircuts Nearby, sir? That way we come up first on Google whenever somebody Googles haircuts nearby. I remember I was talking about like our pricing model or whatever and Sabrina Grandi objects to relevance. Can you tell us what you do on a daily basis at haircuts nearby? We offer three things. Haircut, shave, haircut, and shave. Same for men and women. Now I started with a flat range of uh, $6. Started with $6 and then uh, haircuts nearby ended up on a tumbler grammar some nonsense and uh all these hipster entertainment types started coming to the shop saying it was vintage and authentic relevance and haircuts nearby being vintage or uh whatever else the witness is about to say (laughs) (laughs) is a very legitimate objection it was in no way relevant um but when has a character witness's backstory ever been and the judge said... Well, the judge is kind of enjoying it. <laughs> and I do note that the time is running. So uh, the objection is overruled. Um, which was so funny. Um, but, I mean, that is... One thing I will say um, is, like, you should object to character witnesses' backstories when they go long. Because a lot of times, it'll really throw us off. Like... Pro tip to attorneys out there, it might make you look like a little bit of a jerk, but it's going to hurt us more than it's going to hurt you most of the time. Well, I always think of it as like if you're like in the old Mario games where you you like hit a clearing and you're just like hitting like coins after coins after coins. Like when a character, when a great character witness like you is just like riffing. I'm like, I can hear the opposing team's points just being racked up in my head. And I'm like, hey, guys, we should right. we should do something about that. Yeah, yeah. And your team in the round that we went in, in round four, um, they objected to my character witness. And it was very effective. They said it was not relevant. I didn't get to finish my riff about uh, Vincenzo's and the, the go and stuff. And it <laughs> threw me off. And I, I don't think I scored incredible in that round. And that was, I mean, it was a good strategic move on your attorney's part to object. As an impartial person that watched that round, I thought you were hilarious and it was really fun anyway. So I disagree. Yeah. I did too. I, <laughs> I, I thought you were hilarious too, but I also was glad my attorney objected. You should, I mean, it was the right move. Well, kind of getting us back onto the, the narrative I'm trying to weave here. 2018 Nats, you know, back to the final round, but this time it's not quite you in the final round. It's your B team. So obviously a little bit different, a kind of a every other year type of thing going on. But, you know, how is that for you as the A team kind of expect? I mean, maybe not expecting to go to the final round, but you were there last year. You're returning most of the same people. And I think you got three wins overall. Not not exactly what you were looking for. Well, I mean, certainly we did not perform how we wanted. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, I don't want to chalk everything up to it, you know, it being this, but I think regional differences played a big part in that, you know, uh, Minnesota just did not like us. They did not like Elizabeth. Um, and they, uh, they were not huge fans of Andy. 
They liked Mike okay. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was tough. And I mean, the other thing is, you know, if any team that goes nationals, it's going to be really freaking good. And, and, you know, there were teams that, you know, we would hit when we were doing poorly and, you know, we, we, I would maybe think to myself like, oh man, we're doing poorly. So now we'll go up against a team that we can beat, but there are no bad teams at nationals. I mean, Mm -hmm. every team there is really, really good. And so when your stuff isn't quite hitting, it's just not going to happen. But I mean, the thing I'll say about that year is, I mean, that was maybe the coolest thing that happened to me in my entire mock trial career was for us to crash and burn and then our combination BC team to end up in the final. I mean, it, that was awesome. I mean, that I, I honestly was more thrilled with that than I think I could have been with any outcome. Um, Cause those are folks who are just as good as anybody else in that association, just as talented, just as hardworking. And it was so cool for them to, you know, get to do their thing in that setting at the final round and everybody to see just how good they were. And also as a little bit of a flex to be like, Oh yeah, our bench is deep, you know, like, yeah, like you knocked us out, but Hey, you forgot Justin Abbasi, sorry. Yeah. Justin Abbasi, like Vinay Basti, Ali Miller, Nadia Rahman. I mean, I could keep going. They're on our other team, Hmm. right? Like all of these absolute all-star killer mock trial competitors are still waiting in the wings, you know? Um, and they were awesome. And that final round, I, again, I thought we had that one. Um, and of course, I mean, Miami put up a great round, but, you know, I mean, they crushed it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say all of that because I I forget if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but that year, I guess it would have been 2018, I judged y'all's B team at Georgetown's Hilltop Invitational against Chicago. I don't remember what, I think it was like a Chicago hybrid, like A, B or something like oh, that. Chicago was amazing that year. They were. And it was a great... Chicago's A at least was incredible. And, and I don't remember if that was their true. I don't think it was because I think it was the same weekend as downtown. So I think it was their B. But either way, it's this great round. And I remember walking away and you guys, without getting into the details, you, the case theory that, that your B team ran in the round I watched was utterly ridiculous. Um, and you <laughs> won my ballot comfortably. Uh, and and it was hard for me, but I, I remember seeing Justin and I think Sam Gross was on that team and like so, and Nadia. And like, I remember walking around away from that round and being like, oh, that that's, that's a really good B team. Because uh, I knew oh, it was yeah. your B team because I knew all the people who, w- who would be on it if it was your A. And so, I, you know, when you guys made the final round and it wasn't, I know it was a hybrid BC that made the final round, but still like it, I think it was a little less shocking to me because I had seen that B team go and I was like, oh wow, this is a really good team. Oh yeah. No, I mean, they were not, they did not come to play around. Yeah. So 2018 happens, you guys, you know, your B team falls just a little bit short. So going into 2019 and obviously we have a a couple of questions about some things that happened at the 2019 national championship tournament. So as you've mentioned, your your B team and C team, luckily, were able to continue the legacy, and you guys were able to continue on with the the path to nationals. You guys kind of made a hybrid AC team, to my understanding, for orcs, and then you get to nationals. What's the attitude going in? I mean, it, it's kind of time to prove yourself, isn't it? I mean, you've yeah. gotten three wins last year. You didn't make it out of regionals. What's the attitude going into nationals? I mean... 
it's 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 a team effort, you know. I mean, more than anything, that Nationals team was such a team effort. Uh, I mean, you got ten people on that roster. You've got some folks who are single sided. You've got everybody working their absolute butts off. You know, you've got members of C team who have, I mean, absolutely worked their tails off to get to a level where they're ready to be at nationals. And, you know, we went in there feeling good. You know, we went in there feeling confident. Like we had, we had worked really hard. We had, we felt like we had done everything that we could do. You know, we had theories that we felt good about. And, you know, I mean, you, you never, you never go into nationals expecting to make the final round. I think to ever do that is insane because there's so many good teams and it's also such a subjective and weird thing that we do. I mean, you certainly never go in expecting that you're going to make it to the final round. You just go in, you want to do a good job, you know, but, you know, we, we felt like we had put together a strong team that could really compete, you know, and, um, and that's also such a testament to the members of the C team who, I mean, stepped up and and got ready to be on a top tier nationals, you know, level team, um, which is such a testament to them and their ability and the hard work that they put in. No, that's that's really true. That like you mentioned before, it shows a level of depth and a level of just sort of like team cohesion that is hard to achieve. Um, so you progress through that nationals and and look. I would be remiss if I didn't ask this next question, which is so, of course, to get to the final round, you end up in a round four pairing against us. Yes, a difficult round. A, a great round. And and I think originally- A great round in mock trial. The way the cards had fallen out, um, you guys, it would have been you against Cornell, but you guys had already played. And so we got bumped up one into that round. And Cornell was great too, just by the way. They were incredible. Yeah, that Cornell team, we they're- they had so many like rock solid seniors and people had been doing it for them for so many years. Um, that was, a great I did team. not want to hit that team. I'll tell you that much. We got matched up against them and I was furious. <laughs> so you get through there, right? And so you, you, I think statistically the way it worked is we would have had to sweep you guys in order to jump you and get to the final round. That's and really right. Any other scenario. I think if we had only, if you'd gotten a half ballot, Miami could have gotten by both of us. But otherwise, I think mm-hmm. if we had swept, it would have been us. Otherwise, it would have been you guys. After yeah. that round, as a team, you know, what what was, I thought, a pretty competitive round. How were you guys feeling going into closing ceremonies? We, I mean, we didn't know. I mean, we thought it had been basically a dead heat. And so, you know, we were like, you know, if we were like, this was probably, we felt like it was a dead heat. And so the median outcome of a dead heat is a split and a split probably puts us in the final so we got to start prepping like we're going to be in the final. And we had no idea if we were going to, you know, but, you know, we were like, that round was incredible. And if it's, if it's a wash, which it felt like it might've been a wash means that we probably made it. And so right. we were, we were starting to prep, but obviously with an eye to the fact that we, we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, but man, that was a great round. And I just got to say, again, I mean, to you, that was, I mean, that's an impressive team that you've got there and, and you're, your attorney uh, is Sydney Gaskins, right? I mean, mm-hmm. she is a powerhouse. She is, I mean, wow. I, I was pretty blown away by her. I'm very proud of her. She's a sophomore. <laughs> that's that's um, what I've been told, which is terrifying. <laughs> so uh, obviously 
your assessment though is 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 right and and it ends up being a two two split until you guys get through so um obviously a lot of stuff has happened after the final round and we want to get and to I'll that just mention, and, and 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 I, I will mention that we were defense in that round and we put up the same case theory that we put up in the final and you'll notice two two split so the argument that we broke the case in some way or that there was no remedy to our theory I think is pretty well undermined by the fact that you guys took two ballots off of us right there. It, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I, I wasn't necessarily planning on, on telling this, but I'll, I'll just share this really quick just cause I've told a couple of people and I think it's, it fits into what you're saying and it's, and it's kind of funny, which is, so we draw you guys in round four. Right. And I know just from some things I'd heard through sort of the grapevine that your defense theory was going to be, I don't want to use a pejorative word, but different than what a lot of other defense theories had been. Bonkers could be a good one. Yeah, a little, a little, a little nuts. Um, and uh, but I, you know, so I and I, we've played you guys before. I, I know some of the guys in your team, so I figured, all right, I should let me try to just find out what's going on here, so we're prepared. Um, and of course, nobody, I'm sure this was by design. Nobody knew anything, right? Because I'm sure you guys kept it pretty close to the vest. So. I was trying to find, because you guys had played Emery B in round one, and I was trying to find someone from Emery B. I didn't know anyone, and I reached out to everyone I knew, and nobody got me any connection. So it's three in the morning. I finished fixing some things, and I'm like, I should go to sleep. So I sit at my computer, and I study a photo of Emery for like five minutes before I went to sleep, because I figured, all right, they're probably staying in the same hotel as us. And so I get up the next morning, and I go down to the hotel lobby and sit on my laptop and just kind of look for them. Um, (laughs) And I find- Did you find one? I did. I I found one there. I won't go into detail on exactly who or how I managed to do it, but I I identified a characteristic I was looking for. I located that person. I went up to them, and they they didn't give me like, but they basically told me, like you guys are going to blame Dakota rivers and you're going to take Dakota river. So we're not going to have them. So I was like, okay, all right, cool. We can handle that. We're good. I've got an hour to implement what I need to implement. And then we went and we put it in and we did the best we could. So that was my insane coaching moment. Hey man, that's dedication. <laughs> I, I think insanity might be a better word. I think that might've been the word that, that Justin Bernstein used when I told him that story, but um, you got to do what you got to do. Sometimes I knew you guys would do something creative and I wanted to know what it was. Yeah. And it turns out you figured it out. I mean, that is, that's impressive. Way to be, man. Don't congratulate him on that. Wait, wait, wait. Don't congratulate him on that, Adam. Oh my goodness. I haven't heard that full story before. Hey man, you, you play, you play the game by the rules, man. He did. I mean, he did, he, that, that is allowed. I, I, the, the one caveat I'll say before I move to the final round is that is the only circumstance, a round four where we have to sweep against Yale. Like those three things together were the confluence sure. of factors that led me to that place. I'm not necessarily proud of it, but it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, so obviously then you get into the final round and, and we'll talk about the aftermath later, but you're playing uh, right. Rhodes, who's obviously a fantastic program and a very, they sort of have a unique style as well. So, Absolutely. A two-parter question, which is you guys win the coin flip, um, right? Yeah, you win the coin flip. No, 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 no That's no, right. No, that's no, right. No, no. They, they win the coin, the coin flip. flip. No, no, because we wanted to go pee. Interesting. Okay, so that was going to be my question, which is what was your preferred side? And then just break down sort of the, the preview and then the round itself. Oh, we really wanted to go pee. We felt really good about our pee side. We felt like it was a pee-biased case. Um, we had done really well on pee. Like we 
a hundred percent we wanted to go, you know, on the plaintiff, no doubt. Um, and we, uh, you know, we, we had the flip and, uh, you know, we, uh, we were defense and, and I mean, they took it right. And they, they wanted to go peep, which we were like, crap. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we were just like, you know, we're going to do what we can do. Um, but yeah, we wanted to go plaintiff. Wow. How different would this be? With just a different coin flip. Isn't that interesting <laughs> to think about? Oh, I know. And also, you know, if UVA had won, they were going to go D. If they had, if they had won the coin flip, they said that they were going to choose defense because hmm. they didn't, they didn't want to go up against us in defense. Hmm. Um, and and they, you know, were pretty close to being the team we were up against. Yep. And so, wow. if they had been up there, no matter which way the coin flip had gone, we would have been on P. Because if we had won, we would have chosen. If they had won, they would have chosen defense. So, Adam. The final round obviously happens, and and you know we'll talk about the aftermath. It does happen. It, it yes. did. It did in fact happen. It, you know, I know there's no video it did occur. on the website, but it it did in fact occur. Um, but uh, so so it happens, and and can you break down for us just the round itself, like how uh, how did you feel as it was going on, and then you know you've been chasing this for i mean like you've been on final round teams, and you guys have won championships and everything, but this is your last year, and and ultimately you know at least for the time you guys were crowned the national champions and you know given the trophy and everything and how did that feel for you sort of in your your last year if you're able to think back to to that moment um i mean obviously we were thrilled um we you know we were ecstatic and and we you know i remember turning to elizabeth and i said we did it you know we did it we, and that was what we'd been chasing for four years. And I mean, Elizabeth and I had had, you know, I mean, Elizabeth is the longest professional, you know, relationship of my life. And we're also friends, of course, but I mean, in terms of like a, a working relationship too, I mean, we've have such a special, you know, kind of relationship that we've, you know, built over the years. And, you know, we had really felt like we had pushed to try to, you know, make sure that that combination team could compete at a nationals level. And it had not always been easy. There had been a lot of stress and, and, you know, tough decisions that had to be made and we felt like we climbed the mountaintop and uh and, and i we i just remember saying you know we did it and i i'll remember i remember specifically and and maybe this analogy feels worse now but it was how i said to other people you know at the end of uh avengers infinity war when thanos has done the whole thing and he just like sits down peacefully on his planet and just smiles a little bit like he's done it that was how i felt I was like, we, we've done it, you know, now we can look on a grateful universe or in our case, a very angry AMTA board. Um, um, I mean, in terms of the round itself, it was a great round. You know, what can I say? I mean, Rhodes knows what the heck they're doing. There's a reason that they have been a top tier program for so long. They were a very impressive team, you know, and, and again, and maybe this <laughs> doesn't bode well for my ability to guess our round's gone. I thought we had lost. I was sure that we had lost. Um, I had made peace with it. I was like, it's okay. You know, we've done, we did everything we could do. I mean, in the end, you know, we didn't, whatever. It's it's confusing what happened in the end. But, um, you know, I had made peace with the fact that I thought that they had taken more ballots and I was okay with it. And then I heard Yale and I was surprised and thrilled and it was awesome. I mean, it was, it was an incredible moment and such an incredible, you know, at the time, at least capstone to four years of, of this always being the goal, you know? 
Oh, Adam, I, I loved your analogy to Thanos and the Avengers. I'm just in my <laughs> head. I'm picturing next year when by some, not really stretch of the imagination, but when Yale manages to make it to the final round again and the memes start coming of the, you know, all of this and it's brought you back to me. Memes come out. I'm inevitable. I'm excited for it. I am inevitable. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, in the second Avengers movie, which hadn't come out yet at the time, they undo all the things that Thanos did. So, you know, perhaps it was prescient. You, you, you made the joke, not me. It was in my head, but I'm glad you said it. <laughs> so obviously the sanctions happened. We don't want to get too much into the details of exactly all of that that's there. But can you just give us a little bit of a sample of how the team is doing right now? You know, obviously you have to look towards next year, but you are graduating. What What's your take on all of this? I mean, in terms of how the team is doing, you know, I mean, we're, we're obviously, you know, we're holding together and, and all, but I mean, we're, we're very upset. I mean, we felt like we won that round. We felt like we earned that title. We still absolutely believe that we followed the rules. Um, and we have a like 50 page document explaining how, um, that is available online. Uh, and, and more importantly, you know, we went in there believing that we were following the rules and, you know, it seems that people have different interpretations of, of the rules. And, you know, I think that, you know, it's something that, you know, we could hash out if we want, but I mean, the most important, I mean, we went in there absolutely believing that we had a case theory that followed the rules. We left that round believing that we had followed the rules um, and that we had won it. And, and, and that of course is disappointing to have that championship stripped and to have the all Americans stripped. But I mean, by far, by far, by far, by far, the most disappointing thing is the suspensions um, and the extent of them. You know, I mean, first of all, it's, unprecedented to have this level of sanctions for an egregious invention violation. You know, you look at the the sanctions before the, um, the Bailey issue, which I think most people would have to agree was, was a more clear egregious invention of fact. And you have the two students suspended and that was that, I mean, to have everyone on that team suspended, I mean, to have someone like a Jean VF Lou, who is a one-sided witness on the plaintiff who had nothing, nothing to do with the development of that case theory whatsoever to have her barred from competing next year is tough. I mean, and to have someone like a, like a, you know, a Kenzie Clark who, you know, a freshman who worked her tail off, put up an incredible show in the final round and also, I mean, was part of, you know, putting together that case, but had nothing to do with crafting that witness specifically, with crafting what was going to happen on it, to have her barred from competing next year is hard. It's really hard. And, and I mean, these are my friends, you know, these are my friends and this is something that's really important to all of us. It's something that we really care about. It's something that we work really hard on and, and and I mean, I, I'm not suspended, you know, but I mean, to have my friends barred from, you know, being able to compete at Orcs and Nationals, doing the thing that they work all year to do, 
especially the people who, I mean, had nothing to do with that at all. I mean, what people who were one-sided witnesses on the other side to have them barred. Uh, it's tough. It's really tough, you know, and, and we are, we are upset about it. We're really upset. And, and of course we're going to stick together and rebuild and, and do everything we can do. I mean, and then also have someone like Sam Gross, you know, who was, who was not on that side and who has been, I mean, let me tell you, I mean, if you want to talk about somebody with integrity, you don't need to look any further than Sam Gross. Okay. I mean, I, I don't know that I've ever met a person with more integrity in my life than Samuel Gross. One of the kindest, I mean, but not only that, I mean, absolutely one of the kindest people in the world, but also absolutely a rock of integrity. And also, I mean, I, he also believes we didn't break the rules, but again, I mean, he was on the other side of that case to have him barred from competing in his final, in his senior year, when he is one of absolutely the best attorneys in the American Mock Trial Association and was about to absolutely kill it next year. It's just hard. I mean, to have Andy Parker barred from his senior year is, it's hard. I mean, and it's, it's hard, obviously, from a standpoint of, you know, we, it makes our teams, you know, it takes people out of the running who are really good competitors, but it's also just, these are my friends. And, and to see this happen to them is, is not easy. It's really tough. Well, I want to hopefully transition to hopefully a lighter and happier topic. We are, uh, obviously excited that we finally have a, a prominent witness on the podcast. So I want to ask you a couple of questions about witnessing. I know it's a slight change in tone, but I want to start out, you mentioned this a, a while ago now, but Patrick Doolittle was the, the prominent character witness for Yale for your first, uh, for your first year. And do not sleep on Eleanor Rundy. Uh, absolutely. What is it like do you feel like you got to learn at all from them? Were you living in their shadow at all? I mean, these are some of the most well-known witnesses in mock trial. Many people would argue that they've really changed the way people approach witnessing. What was it like trying to follow up that? I mean, obviously you've created a name for yourself, but as a younger member, what was that like? For I just, I mean, Pat and Eleanor, first of all, are just such, such incredible folks um, and such kind and cool people you know, that, that always made me feel welcome and, and valued and all those things. Um, you know, Pat was actually my fall team captain my freshman year. Um, and, and so, you know, there certainly was never a complex of, you know, feeling, you know, like they ever acted like they were, you know, better than me or something. But I mean, you watch them in the round and you're kind of like, oh, they're better than me. They're, (laughs) they're better than me at this. Um, and I mean, it's, it's a thing where you just got to, you know, find your own spot in it. Right. I mean, I'm not going to try to do quite what Pat does, you know, cause I can't, cause nobody can do it as well as him. Um, I would say I maybe hew a little closer to what Eleanor did her sort of style. Um, but I mean, it certainly is something that you watch and I mean, it's always valuable to be able to look at something and be like, Oh, that's how you do it. I mean, I remember all just a very quick little aside. I remember I, when I got to college, and I'd done high school mock and through youth and government, I've been re- relatively successful. And, and, and I was like, I know how to do mock trial. I'm good at mock trial. This is a thing I'm good at. And I went to the info session and you, we saw Dan Stern close and we saw Eleanor do a witness. And then we saw Allison Durkin do a witness. And I left that session. And I remember saying, oh, I'm terrible at mock trial. <laughs> I had no idea. I, 
I didn't realize I was bad at this, but it turns out that I am. That's so good to know. Um, and so it's also a fire under your ass. Like you've got to follow up Pat Doolittle, Eleanor Rundy, and Allison Durkin, who are, I mean, Allison Durkin is maybe the best dramatic witness in the history of the American Mock Trial Association. Pat Doolittle and Eleanor Rundy are maybe the best character witnesses in the history of the American Mock Trial Association. And then you follow that up. It's a fire under your ass to like, you've got to bring it because, you know, that's, that's, I mean, those are your predecessors. So it's, it's, it's good on that front, but it certainly is intimidating. Of course it is. Well, Adam, I've really been wondering what your specific approach is to developing a witness. You know, what's the first step? What's the last step? How do you do everything in between? Yeah. So we, we have a process, which we, we literally call it the process. And it's me and my directing attorney who for a long time, that was Mike Burns this year. It was a few folks, but mostly was, was Sam Gross. We go into a room and we basically, I basically just riff for as long as it takes for us to write stuff that we think is really funny. Um, And it's basically just like iterating then. So like we go off into a room and we generate just a ton of content. And then we basically bring it back to the room of everybody and we show it. And then Elizabeth makes me cut 90% of it. And then we go back and we write more. So, I mean, for like, I think I, I maybe already said this, but for every joke you hear on the stand, there are seven, there are just 10 other jokes that were written that, that didn't go up. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think that I really am any funnier than anybody else is. I, I think that why sometimes my witnesses, you know, can be successful is that I spend all of my time writing jokes. I mean, even when I'm not doing mock trial, I spend all my time writing jokes. But I mean, if you just write enough jokes, some of them will be funny. Um, So if you just generate enough content, then you can sort of whittle it down and make it what it needs to be. So that's one part of it. I would say the other part of it is, you know, crafting a witness whose gimmick or shtick or whatever works for what we need, right? So do we want this witness to be trustworthy or is it more useful if they're dumb, right? Because you can make all of those things work. Like if you want to be trustworthy, you can make them kind of like curt and, you know, short with people. And and that maybe it lends itself to a Southern accent, right? Another thing is, you know, I'll change my accent a lot based on what I feel like that witness calls for. Do I want them to have like a working class energy that can lend itself a lot of like trustworthiness and sort of charisma. So I might do more of a New York accent. You know, um, if I want them to be goofy and weird and dumb, I'll do like a New Zealand accent, maybe like there are a lot of different options there. Um, And then the biggest other thing is like, write things that I think are funny, and that my team genuinely thinks are funny. And that's, I think, a big thing for us is like, if it doesn't make us laugh, then I'm not going to do it. Like, I'm never going to have a joke in there where I'm like, oh, this is like, cute and maybe like an old judge would like it but like i don't think it's that funny like we're never going to put something up there unless we think it's quite funny um unless it makes us crack up um and and then we cut it down obviously to you know what's going to work in the room with a lot of different audiences but i mean the biggest thing is like it's got to be funny to us well, Adam, I mean, it sounds like you try to make your witness personality fit what the team-wide theory kind of needs. Mm-hmm. 
So is there an approach that Yale takes to determining what those personalities are? I mean, you mentioned that the rivers that you played for the plaintiff, you portrayed as Irish. I mean, right. is that how is that in furtherance of the theory or how is that something that you guys came up with to to determine that you wanted to play it in that way? I mean, yeah, we always, I mean, Yale's sort of philosophy on mock trial in general is like, you got to make it entertaining and you need to make it have everything that they want it to have, right? So in an ideal world, we do the classic. We have a character witness, a dramatic witness, and uh, an expert witness. And so we want to give people everything that they might expect, you know, a great dramatic witness, a really fun character witness, and then like a really good expert. Um, and so we have to figure out how they all fit into each other, right? So if someone else is doing something, first of all, you can't do it. But then also, yeah, like it depends on what the case needs. I mean, I'll give you a great example. That's not even me, but Eleanor Rundy in the final round 2016, you know, there was that issue with the, the signatures matching, right. When they had signed into the, um, the concert, the sitar concert. And so we decided that she was going to have done like copied that signature. That's the only, you know, response. And so her whole character was based around that idea. She was ditzy and weird and artsy. And that was her whole character. And it was established from the beginning and then, you know, it was believable when she got to being like, oh, I, I just copied her S's because I thought that they were so fun. So I, I liked the way she did them. And that didn't even raise an eyebrow, right? So, yeah, you always got to craft the character to try to be in furtherance of, of kind of what's happening. And then you can, you can make it funny, right? Like you, if they're stern, you can make stern funny. If they're dumb, you can make dumb funny. If they're whatever, you can make, you know, this funny. And, and then the final thing is is our philosophy is every part a 10, um, which is like every part needs to feel like it should be a 10. Um, and I feel like normally, you know when a, a part is a 10. Like, you know if the witness is hilarious. You know if the witness is like, it's dramatic stuff is really good. Like, you know if the expert is right. And we watch it, and if it's not a 10, then we figure out what it's missing to make it a 10. And I think that, and then it's just you put in the time to iterate until you get there. There's a lot of iteration and probably 80% of the time that we spend at practice is direct attorneys working with their witnesses, iterating those scripts to make them what they need to be. Well, understandable, but you've certainly made a bit of a name for yourself as we've seen and as you displayed in your many awards that you've won. So do you have any you know fun stories for us about maybe a witness idea that ended on the cutting room table or just random witnesses that you've tried and maybe they've been successful, maybe not, but just, you know, I feel like we never get to hear enough of these fun witness stories. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I don't know. I mean, we've already gone a while on this podcast. I have a million stories of witnesses that I have ended up on the cutting room floor and jokes that have ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, I mean, if you ask Elizabeth about this, she'll tell you that the majority of our relationship is me and for a while, Mike Burns, and then later on, usually like Sam Gross, would go off in a room and we would come back to the room of people giggling and we'd be like, guys, we want to show you this thing. And we would tell a bunch of jokes and Elizabeth would just go, no, <laughs> you are, you are not, no, you're not going to say those things. Um, and I'll, 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 if, if, I mean, this is not good form is to tell your own jokes, but I will, I will share a few of them with you if you're interested of jokes that got cut. Yes, please. Um, oh, <laughs> and you can keep these in the podcast or not. 
um, the biggest fight Elizabeth and I have ever gotten in, by far, by far was over this joke, which was for Waters my junior year. And we made, he was like a street performer, but we made him have an advice booth. And, <laughs> and he was like a Southern guy. And the joke was about like advice that he's given to people. And the joke was, you know, when he's giving his background, he's like, I, I give advice to all kinds of folks. You know, people come up to me and I'll tell them what to do. I'll say, ma'am, you should tell him to pack his bags. Or, sir, I just don't think that that's going to fit. Or, you know what, ma'am? Drop the the. Just call it Facebook. <laughs> um, or I think it was Mark. It was like, you know what? And, or, you know what, Mark? Why don't you drop the the? Just, just call it Facebook. And I thought it was hilarious. I was like, this is one of the funniest jokes ever. This is brilliant. And Elizabeth and I argued about it literally for, I think, about 45 minutes. <laughs> uh, she refused to include it because it suggested that either Mark Zuckerberg had been in Midlands, which she found not believable, or that I was making a joke on the stand, which she found to be – like the witness themselves usually can't be making jokes. Um, <laughs> I think eventually it was cut, but <laughs> – that's the biggest fight I ever got in. There were some other ones. Like there was one for um, Rivers, I, my Rivers. I played Rivers on on P where he was he was Irish and he was talking about um, like failed strategies for like how to get people to buy more milk. And he had this joke that I loved that was um, the, the accent I got to get into it was, um, um, you know, we, we tried a lot of things that didn't work out well. We tried... Um, rebranding milk we had this idea we were gonna call it liquid gold and you know so we dyed all the milk yellow and you know we thought it was gonna work but it just looked too much like piss (laughs) (laughs) oh no (laughs) i loved that joke so much uh that got cut um I have a million more. I'll tell I'll tell one more and then I'll I'll stop because this is it's bad form to tell your own jokes. But there was one where it was a character, it was the Nationals case my sophomore year, and it was the guy who was friends with the playwright, and he was like supposed to be kind of dumb, and he was talking about how he was friends with uh like the playwright and some other person, and it was like, Yeah, well, we was like, did you know these people was the question? And he was like yeah, no, we, we were all, you know, we were friends. We were, you know, we were like a regular Huey, Dewey, and Louie. You know, except, uh, you know, we, we aren't brothers. And, and, and none of us had a, had a rich uncle. And none of us are ducks. <laughs> but it was, uh, I think the decision was that it was too long. And also that it made me seem way too dumb. And again, I mean, these are some, these jokes that got cut. Like these are jokes that we deemed too bad to put on the stand. So I don't know why I'm telling them, but those were some, those were some fun ones that I was not allowed to tell on the stand. Um, But that's what it is for me, at least writing witnesses is, is iteration. You know, for every joke I tell on the stand, there's seven that I wrote that don't go up. Adam, I just want to comment that I, I'm so intrigued and impressed that 
when you refer to some of the past witnesses that you've played, like you were talking about Rivers that you played for the plaintiff, this Nationals case, you, you use the phrasing, he was Irish, rather than saying, I portrayed him as Irish, or I played him Irish. And that's so interesting to me that you've clearly in your mind delineated, this is the personality of this person. You know, he was Irish. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Uh, the waters I played, he was a Southerner that had a booth. Like you've, you've made these stories. Right. And I feel like that's, it's a way that maybe people talk about, Oh, that's how you want to create a witness. But I think mm-hmm. that you said it so casually and I, I want people to notice that I, I think that's such a sign of a strong witness that you've created these whole lives for them in your head. That that's, that's just really astounding. to me. Yeah. And actually I, even more so than maybe you know, I mean, we create lives for them. I mean, we'll do a thing where we, we call it a character hometown sometimes, where you'll sit and you'll get asked all these questions about like your life and your relationship with all the people in the case that you might know and like how you felt about the events and you improv it and it might go for an hour or so sometimes. Um, and you'll flesh out everything about the character. I mean, it's a little more so for dramatics than for character witnesses. Um but I mean, and I remember when it was Sarah Cohen who wanted to do this. And I remember when she pitched it and I was like, this seems dumb. <laughs> this seems, we don't need to do this. And then I did it and I was like, oh, wow, that was really helpful. Um, because obviously my trial, it's not all scripted. And so when you get on cross and you get to stuff, you know how this guy would react because you know what his relationship was to the defendant and how he felt in that moment and all of those things. And when you understand it, you can you know how to play it, you know? Um, and, and I mean, we've always tried at Yale to focus on building characters that seem like real people, you know, that have, that can exist in at least the world of mock trial, you know? And sometimes I have characters who strain that a little bit. They're a little dumber or weirder than maybe a real person would be, but we at least try for that. That's kind of the, the goal. So Adam, after all of this, after all of what I think everyone would call a, a fairly unique uh, four years of a college mock trial. Um, obviously, you've graduated. So uh, do you know what's next for you? Do you know what your plans are now that you've uh, graduated from Yale? Uh, yeah, well, right now I have an internship. Um, I'm working at a place called West Wing Writers. Uh, it's a speechwriting firm. Um, and so that's been very fun. Uh, getting to do a lot of writing, a lot of uh, comedy writing too, which has been great. Um, and then after that, hopefully more writing stuff, you know, I mean, the end goal for me is hopefully to, to be able to write, um, comedy ideally if I can. Um, and so sort of working towards that is, is kind of where I'm hoping to be headed. That's interesting. That's awesome. So, you know, was there ever a time where you like, you know, where the mock trial that you've been doing for a while, you know, made you think about law school or you think it's your trajectory has kind of always been where you're headed? I mean, I'd say when I was a freshman, I didn't really know. But by the time I got to really probably the end of my freshman year, I felt pretty confident I, I wanted to be pursuing comedy. Um, and that sort of has been the goal since. Um, I, I haven't really thought about trying to do law school. You know, I've always said, <laughs> said to my friends, I'm like, if, if things don't work out, maybe I'll go to law school. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, that's that's never been my my dream really is is law school the dream has always been writing and 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 comedy stuff um and you know that's 
Well, saying you want to be a professional uh, comedy writer is kind of like saying that you, uh, your plan is to be in the NBA, <laughs> but you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying my best with it. And, and, you know, it does, it's not like I have to be writing for SNL, you know, if I can just be writing every day and doing some stuff that's fun and doing a little bit of stuff that's funny, you know, I, I feel good. Uh, and that's, you know, what I've gotten to do a lot of my job, you know, is write stuff and be able to write stuff that's funny. Um, and, and that's been good so far. Well, we can't thank you enough for coming on and chatting with us. I appreciate, like Drew said earlier, your candor and, and everything that happened with this year's nationals. And just, you know, like he said, we don't get to talk to witnesses enough. And I guess we really only have ourselves to blame for that. But uh, thanks so much for taking some time to, to chat with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, glad to do it, guys. 